Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Brownsbridge Church podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Brownsbridge Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out more information about Brownsbridge Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. If you grew up in church, uh, you probably had some, some flashbacks. You probably went back a little bit, had a little nostalgia uh, as you were listening to those songs. I know I did. Um, something else uh, that you experienced growing up in church, though, and in fact, you didn't even need to grow up in church to experience this, but certainly, certainly if you grew up in church, you experienced this. Do you remember or can you ever think of a time where someone acted however they wanted to act because they were confident that they were going to heaven one day? You ever seen this dynamic? Yeah, there's a little bit of laughter. There's a kind of nervous laughter because, you know, some of us may be guilty of it in the room as well. But this this is one of those interesting things about Christianity is that we, we talk about how God's love and his grace are free to us, that we don't have to do anything to earn it, that he offers it to us freely. And so we, we come to faith or we receive that. And then um, it sometimes can lead to after we begin following or we begin believing, or we become, you know, become a Christian, it can kind of become this thing of, well, God loves me anyway and it's free. So now I can kind of do whatever I want to. And, and, and then when that happens, salvation, uh, this relationship we have with God, it becomes a hall pass. You know what I mean by that? Like the hall pass of like, hey, I get to kind of do whatever I want because God loves me and his grace is free. And this is just, again, one of those troubling things about Christianity. We've all seen it in other people. And for some of, it, for some of us, we've seen it in ourselves. And if you think about it, most of the time, most of the time when someone is not a Christian or when they are skeptical of faith, it's because of this reason. They have seen something in person. They've seen somebody that's close to them in life um, say they're a Christian and, and say one thing, but do another. Maybe they see something on, on the news, a news story about a pastor or a church that was doing unethical things. And for them, it confirms in them, oh yeah, that's, I don't wanna be like them. They have some sort of personal experience with a family member or a coworker or a friend. I, I heard recently someone was sharing about her stepson who uh, was, uh, is not a Christian, is kind of more of a skeptic when it comes to faith. And um, he was uh, working for someone who was very clearly a Christian, someone who announced it very loudly, was very outward with his faith. And uh, his boss, the owner of the company, was just very, very you know, you know, confident and bold with the fact that he was a Christian. And then when the, the pandemic hit, his boss started doing all these unethical things with the company and leading the company. And so the, the, the stepson, the, the, the guy in the story, he he ends up saying out loud, he said, I will never call myself a Christian. You know, in his skepticism of faith, in his kind of looking at Christianity and faith and the whole thing, he's like, well, I, I don't know if I believe, but even if I one day took that step, I'm never gonna call myself a Christian. This ends up being the reason why so many people leave faith. And if people on the outside looking in, even if they begin to get curious about faith or they're interested in faith, when they see this happen, it actually makes it a bigger jump. You know, whatever gap stood between them and church and them and faith all of a sudden gets wider when they see a Christian acting however they want, but still saying, oh, you know what? 
you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get into heaven one day. I'm all good. It's good. God loves me. His grace is free. You, you listen to deconversion stories, uh, uh, stories of people who have been Christians and have walked away. Maybe it's a, you know, it's, there's all sorts of podcasts out there. You can listen to these people's stories of people that used to be pastors, leaders in the church, and they end up now, they, they don't believe at all. And oftentimes, oftentimes their story will involve just that, the story of someone claiming to do something in the name of Christianity or in the name of Christ, but it's actually a very unchristlike thing that they're doing. Very rarely is their story something that's core to following Jesus. They don't walk away because something that's just, you know, really core to our relationship with him. Normally it's a departure from that. Oftentimes it's simply a Christian acting badly that causes them to walk away from the faith. So why do we do this? Why do people do this? Well, oftentimes it's because we fall into uh, what's known as the believing trap. The believing trap is simply this, that if we believe something correctly, then that takes care of it. We're good. If we believe it correctly, that takes care of it. And then actions become secondary. They become kind of a nice to have, like an add-on, but really the main thing is the belief. I don't know what kind of church you grew up in, but I know the church that I grew up in reinforced this behavior. Um, they would, uh, you, you may remember this, like anytime there was like a youth gathering or even if it was an adult gathering, anytime they had people together, they would like hand out cards and have people like check a box of something, you know, something that was true of them. So, um, you know, the, the first line would say today, you know, today I trusted Jesus as my savior or I put my faith in Christ or I, I prayed to receive Christ as my savior today. And then there'd be some other boxes as well, maybe, you know, interested in baptism, interested in hearing more, interested in serving. And the interesting thing was, and again, some of you know this, you, you experience it, you live this. They were really, really important. They, or they, they, the really important thing to them was, was for you to check that first box. And what was, what was interesting after the fact though, was if you checked that first box, you really would never hear from them again. They, they would celebrate it. And I mean, they would say, hey, no, we had, you know, 42 people at that event checked to say they received Christ as their savior, but then there was no follow-up. Any other box that you checked, you were almost guaranteed to get followed up with. Think about it. Like if you check, oh, I wanna be baptized, they'll follow up with you, to, you know, to, for you to be baptized. Hey, I wanna serve in the church. They definitely follow up with you. Hey, I'm interested in giving financially to the church. They're definitely following up with you, you know? But you check that first box and it's like, they celebrated that, but then there was not really much follow-up after that. So it reinforced this, this decision that, that that was kind of the main thing. And, and part, of, part of the problem, part of what creates the problem is our definition of eternal life. Oftentimes in the churches we grew up in, the, the definition of eternal life was something that begins when we die and then goes on forever, indefinitely, eternally, after that, it was more about duration, something that just went on forever. But the reality is, according to Jesus, eternal life is actually more about quality than it is quantity. Jesus never talked about eternal life as something that just goes on forever. He talked about it in a different way. In fact, there's only one place in scripture where eternal life is defined. It's in the gospel of John. It's in the middle of this prayer that Jesus is praying. In John chapter 17, Jesus says this, now this is eternal life. Last week, I talked about this, how 
The gospel writer John will often narrate in the midst of his stories, he'll kind of insert this narration to explain or give context to what's going on. So uh, Jesus is praying in this moment and he's saying, God, thank you that you've sent me to give them eternal life. And then John inserts this definition. Now this is eternal life that they may know, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, odds are Jesus had probably gone over this definition many times with his disciples. And so as John is recounting this prayer that Jesus prayed and he gets to this eternal life part for, for the benefit of his readers, he's saying, hey, I, w- I want them to know what Jesus meant by this. So he inserts this definition in there. Like, this is what Jesus meant when he said that he came to give us eternal life. This is eternal life right here, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, not living forever. It doesn't begin at death. You don't have to wait to experience this. You can experience this in the here and now. And think about that in, in, in contrast to how we typically think about heaven, how people paint pictures of heaven, like angels with harps, riding on the clouds and singing songs that you don't know, very churchy songs, And that just going on and on forever and ever without ever sleeping. Like no wonder people aren't attracted to our definitions of heaven sometimes or the way the church can portray heaven sometimes. It's not the eternal life that Jesus talked about. He defined it and said, no, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And this this know right here is, it's not intellectual. It's not just open up a book and study as much as you can and get information in your brain. It's experiential knowledge. It indicates relationship. Really a a, a better definition of this or a better translation of this is learning to know you, the only true God and learning to know Jesus, the one whom you have sent. Eternal life is an ongoing discovery. It's an ongoing discovery of who God is and what he thinks about you and what he's up to in your life, in the here, in the now, not just after we die. See, Jesus didn't come to just simply punch our ticket to heaven. He came to call us and to invite us to a different kind of life, a life that he described as eternal. But in order to experience it, in order to experience this kind of life, there's, there's one crucial ingredient that we often miss. A lot of Christians often miss this. It's easy to overlook. And this one ingredient is the thing that Jesus is gonna talk about this week as we look into the upper room. The last couple of weeks, if you haven't been here, we've been talking about the upper room. It was just an ordinary room. It was just four walls and some furniture. There were thousands of rooms just like it in Jerusalem in the first century. But 2000 years later, a billion people on the planet know about the upper room. Why is that? It's because God's story intersected with this place. And when God's story and God's life intersects with something, it takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. And so this room that should have been forgotten to history is remembered 2000 years later because of what God did in that room. And specifically because of what Jesus taught over those few hours 
that he had with his disciples in that room. I've said this the last couple of weeks. If Jesus knew he was going away the next day, he knew he was gonna be crucified. He knew what was gonna happen in the next few hours. And so if you knew that you were gonna go away, if you knew that you were gone tomorrow and tonight you had a last, last remaining few minutes with those closest to you, your words would be weighed so much. There'd be so much emphasis in what you said in that evening. And Jesus, in this last evening he has with disciples, he's saying, look, I've taught you a lot of things over the last three years. This is what I want you to remember. So today we get our last lesson from the upper room. And in fact, it was his last lesson. It was Jesus's last lesson that he taught in the upper room. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all document this and they they put in specific things and various viewpoints. And today we're gonna wrap up in the gospel of John. He says this right here. He's been hanging out with them at the, at the, you know, the dinner table. He's, he's done, hey, the, the, the bread and the wine. Hey, do this in remembrance of me. Judas left to go betray him. And, and then the disciples are arguing, hey, hey, who's the greatest? And he says, hey, the greatest will be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. And, and then he did that thing where he stood up and, and he, he wrapped a towel around his waist and washed all the disciples' feet. And there's been all this discourse and going back and forth and In the midst of all of this, he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. It's like Jesus knows he's about to go tomorrow. He's gonna be crucified. He's gonna be separated from his disciples. Hey, what I want you to remember, what I want you to remember is that whoever has my commands and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. You say you love me now. You say you love me now. Well, this this will show, this will prove that you love me. And then he continues, he says, the one who loves me, AKA the one who keeps my commands, the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. And this is just, it can be a little bit confusing and it's like, wait a second, the father and the son. And, but it's just a beautiful picture of the relationship we have with God. That it really is all about love and that our father in heaven loves us. And Jesus says, I will show myself to them that as we're in this relationship with him, this back and forth with him, he'll continue to reveal himself to us. And then Jesus gets interrupted. It says this in the next verse. It says, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, okay? So, so uh, John had to clarify here who he was talking about. If, if you're not familiar with the story, one of Jesus's disciples that's Uh, very famous for the wrong thing is Judas Iscariot. Judas was the one that betrayed Jesus, turned him over to the chief chief priests and elders and ultimately got him arrested. Well, he wasn't the only Judas that was there that night. There was another Judas there and he pipes up in this moment and John wants to make it clear, hey, I I know you know this other Judas, so I, I need to make sure that you know who I'm talking about. Judas, not Judas Iscariot. This is Judas, son of James. You can read about him in Luke and Acts and some of the other gospel accounts. He, he interrupts and says, but Lord, why do you t- intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And it really has nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about in, the, in this moment. It was just a, it was a, an interruption and the disciples were constantly doing this. In fact, in just these last few verses, this is the third time it happens. Thomas in verse five interrupts Jesus. And then Philip in verse eight interrupts Jesus. And now Judas in verse 22. And Jesus typically used these interruptions to kind of spring off onto another point, And he would kind of make some other main point out of 
that are interruption. But in this one, he seemingly ignores it. He just keeps going right along, which again, I've said this earlier in the series, it points to the personality in the gospels. If you were making it up, you wouldn't write it this way. To where there's an interruption here and Jesus makes a point. Interruption here, Jesus makes a point. Interruption here, Jesus doesn't even, doesn't even respond to it. It says that Jesus replied, but, but he didn't even really reply. He kind of just keeps going on with what he was already teaching. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Again, this is just such a beautiful picture of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God and the relationship and the connection that we can have with him that he can feel at home with us and we can feel at home with him. This is what Jesus, when he defines eternal life, this is what he's talking about. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Jesus is saying again, the way to experience it is through love and obedience. He's connecting the two of them. You can't have one without the other. Love fuels obedience and obedience fuels love. Obedience validates love. It proves love. And here's the thing. You can can obey somebody. You can obey somebody you don't love, don't respect. In fact, we do this all the time. You you may have a boss that you really don't like and, and it's been really hard to work for him, but you'll still obey him. There may be other rules or other people with authority in your life that you don't have respect for. You don't love them, but you obey them. So you can have obedience without love, but you can't have love without obedience. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. So he's driving home this point of love and obedience, love and obedience, love and obedience. Then just a few verses later, look at what Jesus says. He says, I will not say much more to you. Again, he, he knew what was coming. He knew what was about to happen to him. He knew that his death on the cross was imminent. I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming, which sounds like Lord of the Rings or something along those lines. But Jesus was just saying, look, the darkness is coming. The enemy is coming. I know what's about to happen. It's gonna get really, really dark. The prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold over me. It's gonna look real bad, but just remember, he has no hold over me, but he comes, he comes so that the world may learn that I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. And with this, our time in the upper room concludes. Jesus and his disciples' time in the upper room concludes. And they depart and they go to the garden of Gethsemane. And many of you know the story from there as Jesus is arrested and he's tortured and he's tried and eventually is crucified. But look at his last words. Look, look, at, the, look at the last thought that he ends on before they leave the upper room. Love and do. I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded me. He was in this lesson with them, going back and forth about, hey, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. You'll love me, you'll obey my commands. 
And then it's like, he makes it really, really personal. He brings it home for them. They didn't know it at the time. They didn't know what was about to happen in the hours that followed. But he makes it really personal. Jesus looks them in the eye and essentially is saying, look, look what I'm about to do for you. I'm not just asking you to, hey, if you love me, obey my commands. I'm living this out as well. I love the father. I love my father and my love of the father. My love of the father is going to lead me to do exactly what my father has commanded me. Which was the most difficult step of obedience anyone would ever have to take to go be crucified on a Roman cross. He even prayed it in the garden of Gethsemane a few moments later when he's out there with the disciples, he's praying, God, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, he knew what stood before him. If there's any other way, God, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And so in this last teaching, these last moments in the upper room, Jesus is pointing forward to the cross. Hey, the prince of this world is coming and I'm about to be crucified. This is, this is happening so that the world may learn that I love the father and I do exactly as he has commanded me to do. And so you, followers of me, my disciples and peering through the centuries, he speaks to us as well and says, look, one day you're, you're gonna be asked to do something that's gonna cost you something. Obedience is going to cost you something. And it may be just a minor inconvenience, but it may be something much bigger than that. Whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever it costs you, you can never say that it's too difficult. Following Jesus and following his lead he went to the utmost extremes to prove his love of the father, following his commands all the way to the cross so that you and I, as followers of him, would have no excuse. We could never say it's too much. We could never say it's too hard. We could never say it's too difficult. But instead, as he is our example, we can step into whatever God is calling us to do. And when we do that, we experience the eternal life that he has for us. We know God the Father and we know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And this is, this, is why, this is why it's so illogical for someone to say, I'm a Christian, but then kind of live their life however they want to live it. This is, this is why it's illogical for someone to say, I'm a Christian, but then go and do whatever they want our savior, the very one we've put our trust in, our hope in, our faith in, obeyed all the way to the cross. And it was driven by love. It was generated by his love of the father. And so in the same way, if we call ourselves Christians, we say, I love you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. Jesus, I'm thankful for your death on the cross and your resurrection as payment for my sins. If we say those things, with our eyes fixed on him, we'll follow through on what he's asking us to do as well. You may remember um, the old uh, Christian hymn, depending on the church you grew up in, you may have sung this 
quite often, but the old song, Trust and Obey. Do you remember that? The Trust and Obey. Here's some lyrics to the song. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And for some of us in here today, it would be heresy if I tweaked this song at all, changed this song. I know that my grandmother who passed away just a few years ago at 99 years old, she definitely wouldn't want me messing with this song. But today I just, I just wanna add an asterisk to this song. It's, it's not trust and obey. When we say it this way, it almost feels like, okay, these are the, these are the two things on the Christian to-do list. We wake up every morning and we have to trust you know, believe, make sure we have the right perspective in mind. We have to trust, 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 and obey. Don't do anything bad. Make sure you do the right things. You know, we need to trust and obey. Like these are two different things. And again, we're, we're really good at the trusting part. You know, we're really good at believing. Can you, in our minds, go, okay, yep, God's real. And yep, yep, you know, it's, it's the obedience part. It's the obedience part that often gets us. So today I wanna to introduce a new phrase. Not trust and obey, but rather trust will obey. Trust will obey. This was Jesus's last lesson in the upper room. If you, tr- if you truly trust God, if you truly love God, you'll do what he's teaching you to do. If you truly trust Jesus, if you truly put your faith in him and he's your savior, he's your Lord, it'll be proven when you follow through what he's inviting you to do. Trust will obey. Unless of course, uh, you're just punching a ticket to heaven. In which case you would be missing out on so much that Jesus has come to offer you. If you're just punching a ticket to heaven, you'll miss out on the eternal life that Jesus is offering you. So I think there's a better word for us to use as we are Christians or, or, or church people. It's this word right here is follow. Follows the word that really encapsulate both of these things, that there's trust and obedience. Trust will obey. That's following. There's trust and there's obedience together. And here's why this word is so important to us who consider ourselves church people or followers of Jesus is that it would be easy if every little detail of our life was spelled out and we knew exactly what obedience was and disobedience in every single area of our life. But that's not the way God designed it. You know, when Jesus told the disciples, hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Well, for them, they had followed Jesus for three years at this point. And they had experienced all of life with him. I mean, waking up and going to sleep and everything in between. And so for them, they had a front row seat to see how Jesus interacted with people and how he dealt with conflict and how he dealt with, uh, you know, remember, remember what we did in that one city with the person who was dealing with this. And remember that one conflict that we had and remember the other issue that we faced and, So they had three years of this. So when Jesus said, hey, you love me, you'll keep my commands. They had a pretty clear idea of what that was. For us in the 21st century, it's not always that clear. It's not always that easy. The Bible, you can't just go to the Bible and it spells out everything in detail in your life. But yet 
we find out what his will is for us and what obedience is for us the same way that the disciples found out by following. We follow Jesus. And as we're on a journey with him in life, things will pop up, things will surface and we'll realize, oh yeah, this right here, that's probably not honoring to this person. And if it's not honoring to this person, I probably shouldn't do it. And then this thing over here, oh yeah, like I haven't been doing this thing. And I realized that this is something I probably should be doing. You know, as I follow Jesus in my life, I'm a Christian. I consider myself a good person and a follower of him. And so I probably should be doing this over here. So if we want to be able to follow his commands, obey his commands, truly love Jesus as he talked about with his disciples, then therefore we must, we must follow, must be on a journey with him. And when the path becomes clear, We must walk in it. We must obey. Once we know what it is, once he surfaces that thing, once he shows us that thing, if we're truly trusting him, trust will obey. So here's the question for you, for me, for all of us today. Where is your trust not obeying? Where is your trust not obey? Where is your belief not living itself out? Where is your trust not fully playing itself out? Observe your life. We should constantly be observing our life and asking that question. And then when we see something, we need to admit it. Maybe something's coming to mind for you right now and you, you just need to admit it. Be honest to God. We can be honest with him. Be honest with God about it. God, this is an area of my life that I just, I'm not really trusting you. Because if I was, I'd be obeying you, but I'm not. So I, I just, I just wanna be honest. I'm not, I'm not trusting you. Be, be honest. If you won't be honest with God, at least be honest with yourself. When you see that place, that area, that, that spot in your life where your trust is not really playing itself out, the, the obedience is not happening, you know, okay, this this is an area, I'm not, be honest with yourself, I'm not, I'm not trusting in this area. Maybe this is an area that I've not released to God yet, surrendered to him. Where's your trust not obeying? And then another question, another question we can all ask, because maybe nothing comes to mind for you in that, but that would lead us to the second question is, where can you invest in your journey? Where do you need to invest in your journey so that you follow Jesus better? That you can follow him closer? So that following leads to a richer connection with him and an experience of the eternal life that Jesus came to offer us. What does that look like for you? Where could you invest in your journey? This this is why our church exists is to help you take those steps. It's to help you get connected with other people that can encourage you and help you take steps in your faith journey, help you overcome those milestones in your faith journey. We're here so that you can step up and serve and so that you can see God using you to impact someone else's journey and someone else's faith. And when that happens, your faith grows as well. We wanna connect you with resources that'll help you know God better. Know God 
in a deeper way. And so for you, where can you invest in your journey? Maybe it's joining a community group. Maybe you're already in a community group. You just need to attend that community group. Maybe, maybe you're attending that community group, but you just haven't been fully honest with the men or the women or the married couples that are in that circle. Maybe you need to open up a little bit more, share a little bit more, participate a little bit more in that discussion. Maybe for you, you need to step up and serve. You feel like Jesus has been leading you to do this. He's been putting it in your mind. He's been keeping it at the forefront. And you've had reasons, you've had excuses and you've kept it at arm's length, but maybe you need to step up and serve. And that would be the thing that grows your faith. Maybe you need to develop a private discipline of some sort where you, you get up early in the morning, you read the scripture or you pray or you learn to journal or you find some time during your day to connect with God in a personal way. What do you need to do? What step do you need to take to invest? In There's so many stories around this church of people taking steps investing in their journey and experiencing the eternal life that Jesus came to offer us. I wanna share one story with you before we go. It's the story of Adam and Julia Wirt. Uh, they've been a part of this place for many years and I wanted you to hear how this has played out in their lives. Check this out. My name is Adam Wirt. I'm married to Julia we have four kids, Grace, Lila, Asher, and Summer. Julia and I, I think we're destined to be uh, married because we met on a study abroad trip in Europe, and there's no way that we would ever have ended up together if we weren't trapped in the same proximity for three months straight. I was stuck with him in a foreign country for three months. He made me laugh. He wore a really cute green hat. And uh, we took all the pictures together, so I made him marry me after that. So when I was growing up, we did not attend church. Uh, my parents were very much uh, spiritual, religious. I think that they believed there was a God, but we weren't going to church. Um, my church experience growing up was my parents dropped me off at Sunday school and then would pick us up when church started because we didn't actually go to church because it was kind of boring. I got involved with my youth group, which is where I became a Christian. Um, I didn't have the best relationship with my own father. So I, once I realized that my heavenly father was better than anything, that's when I gave it all. I always believed that Jesus was a real person. I just never really experienced the relationship side. And so when Julie and I started dating, we started going to Buckhead Church. And then when Brownsbridge opened up, we came about six months after it opened. So over the course of starting to go to Brownsbridge, I transitioned from someone who would never have tithed to someone who can't imagine not giving to the church. I transitioned from someone who would never have served, like I'm not gonna waste my Sundays, you know what I mean, to really enjoying serving and loving doing it. So I can specifically remember a message that Andy did where he talked about <clears throat> how a lot of times early in our faith, we were just standing there with both hands closed and we're not willing to even open our hands a little bit. And it really struck me like, that's me. Like I'm standing here with my hands clenched, not doing any of those things. My wife's saying, we should join a small group. Mm, no, no. We should consider tithing. We should consider giving to the church. No. And it's like, it hit me like, what is it gonna hurt you to just open your hand a little bit? We started tithing, we started joining small groups. We started 
volunteering, and it's amazing what came out of that. He said it would make a big church feel small, and you don't really understand that until you do it. So I still see families of the kids that I had in my room in Wamba, but of course now they're like teenagers, which is really weird. And uh, I see their parents and I feel like I know them even though they might not recognize me, but I know I recognize almost every person that's volunteered for our children. A little after Julie and I started having kids, we would split up whenever we'd have to go pick up kids to leave after church was over. And we would always meet in the rotunda. She'd go get one kid from Wamba, I'd go grab another kid and we'd always meet back. And it was always fun because the other kid who, who I didn't go pick up would come running across the rotunda and jump into my arms. And it was just this kind of fun moment. Over the years, that turned into seeing small group friends in the rotunda, seeing my brother and his family and their kids in the rotunda. And just it was always just home base. And I remember when we went into quarantine and when we stopped having in-person services, that that went away. And I didn't realize that I missed it until the first time I came back, I was standing in the rotunda and it hit me like, this feels like home. It's just always been sort of a special place for me. I have so many memories that I can remember after I got baptized, all my family was there. And it's just kind of congregating out there and talking and seeing someone you know and waving. And it's just, it, it always just felt like home. For me, when I would think of what the ordinary experience was like going to church, it was just showing up on Sunday, going home, and that was it. And it's amazing to me how that has changed over the years because our ordinary looks nothing like that. Our ordinary is meeting on Tuesday nights with our small group. It's staying at church to volunteer. It's talking to small group friends for 45 minutes after church is over. Our ordinary is very different from what I ever pictured it to be. And once you start experiencing church that way, you can't go back. You know, it really changed it for the words. Um, the thing that really impacted them was the paint color in the building and the carpet that we chose, you know, for the lobby area and uh, the glass doors and the brick that we chose on the outside. No, none of that. It's just an ordinary building. This is just an ordinary building with, with some framing and some drywall and some, some decor put up around the place. Well, what makes this place extraordinary is people that are following Jesus, whose trust is obeying whose love is truly being played out in obedience. It, it's what God is doing here. It takes an ordinary building and makes it extraordinary. For the words, they'll never forget this place. They'll never forget this place. As long as they live and even into eternity, they'll never forget this place. Brownsbridge will be gone hundreds of years from now. Who knows what this will look like? But yet it won't be forgotten because extraordinary things happen in ordinary places when God's story intersects with them. So for you today, where is God intersecting with your story? Where does your trust need to obey? And how could you invest in your journey with him? Let's pray together. God, thank you for these moments in the upper room that were documented and preserved through history so that we could see them today. So that we could hear your words, Jesus, 
on that last night with your disciples when you knew what was coming. You knew what was coming. You knew what was coming. And you left your disciples with such important messages, God. And it's, it's easy to read them and to agree with them, to nod our heads to them, Lord. It's, it's something in, different entirely to live them out in our lives. And we need your help to do that. So God, we just ask, each of us in here, wherever we are with you, wherever we are on the journey, we just ask for your help. Would you help us live these things out? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.